0: Before we get started, some quick appreciation to those of you that have gone on to iTunes and rated the show. If you haven't done that, click the button. Uh, I, would, I would ask for you to click all five stars, but you're more than welcome to just do four if you, if you feel so led. But no, seriously, thank you so much for your engagement, for your involvement, and for those of you that have shared the show. You are the engine that drives the conversations that we have. And I, I enjoy doing them, and I'm glad that that it is helping some of you. As it, as it is me. Uh, I would ask if you could, click the Patreon button at uh, com. learn a bit more about the show. If you're feeling what is happening here and you'd like to be a little more involved, your generosity would go a long way, more than you know. And so here we are. My guest today for the show is fellow podcaster, author, blogger, overall smarter than me guy by the name of Chris Date. He runs the Rethinking Hell podcast and the website. Uh, he is featured on many YouTube debates and videos. has also organized conferences about the topic of hell. Uh, this, was not, this episode was not able to be aired before the most recent one that happened in March. So the question is, why revisit hell? Some of the feedback that I got after Dr. Stackhouse's interview on the conditionalist or annihilationist view of hell was that we didn't really touch much on the biblical and hermeneutical and exegetical foundation for this view. And so I was able to talk with Chris about some of that. Let's get into it. Chris, thank you so much for joining the the Can I Say This The Church podcast. It's I, I I like the I I I more than like I enjoy very much so your Rethinking Hell podcast. It has helped me a lot in in the episodes that I've listened to, kind of work through some of this. And full disclosure, I still am not a hundred percent certain whether or not I want to lean towards evangelical universalism or conditional salvation, uh, but I don't. I know I'm not eternal conscious torment and and so that's where I come on that's where I'm kind of coming from at at, at this time. So mm. um and that's okay. That's I th- I think in my mind at least that's okay cuz I I do want to make sure where I come down that I come down there for for reasons that that I can sleep with at night. So
1: Sure, I totally get it.
0: I'd like to start with a bit about you. What what can you tell the listeners about yourself? I've heard you on other podcasts on the Bad Christian podcast and others and so I'd like I I'm certain that there are some people that that are not familiar with either your your podcast or some of your views and, and kind of just a bit about you and and your training.
1: Okay, well, first of all, um on a more personal note, I am a husband of uh 17 almost 18 years. <laughs> My wife and I have four sons aging in range uh, ranging in age from 4 to 16. Uh, I myself am uh, 38, and my wife is nearly 38, although I should say she's 28 because, of course, wives are perpetually 28. Mm-hmm. I am a, uh, by trade, a software engineer, have been for the past 17-something years. But very early on in my faith, I developed a uh, a passion for uh, for biblical exegesis and theology and apologetics and things like that, and knew that I would have loved to have changed time, gone back in time and and done an actual degree. I at the time did not have any sort of higher education. Uh, I just had a high school degree and I worked my way into software. Um, And I knew I wanted to go back and get a higher education in theology or something because this was my new passion. But I thought at the time that it was not going to be um, affordable, both in terms of um, finances and time as a husband and full-time uh, a father and, and, and full-time software engineer. Um, but then about, I want to say around six years ago, uh, my best friend and the person who was responsible for discipling me early on in my faith, he began a seminary education at Liberty University. And when he told me about it and, and I looked into what its costs are and what what an education online looks like, Uh, I realized it was eminently achievable in terms of time and finances. And so I began an undergraduate in, you know, Bachelor of Science in Religion, um, a little over, uh, must have been something like a little, about four years ago. Graduated with my bachelor's degree in religion, um, summa cum laude, uh, at the beginning of 2017, at which point I uh, enrolled or um, applied to and was accepted in the uh, Fuller Theological Seminary's Master of Arts degree uh, in theology. And my um, my dream is one day to be a professor at a seminary or a Christian university and as such my plans after graduating from Fuller, Lord willing, is to go on uh, to enter a prestigious PhD program Pause. I know I'm rambling. I'll stop in a moment. But just for <laughs> listeners' sake, uh, when they hear f- names like Fuller and Oxford and Cambridge, they might be thinking screaming liberal. No, um, I'm extremely conservative, almost as conservative as you can get. Um, I'm an inerrantist. I'm even a young earth creationist. It's crazy. People are going to think I'm crazy fundamentalist. Um, the reason I chose Fuller and the reason I want to go to somewhere like Oxford and Cambridge is because I don't think that um, the education is going to uh, prepare me for. Um, Uh, For the kinds of challenges I'm going to face in academia and in Christian apologetics, if I get my education at an echo chamber, I wanted to go somewhere where I would be challenged, stretched, uh, presented with things that I wouldn't agree with and and have to evaluate them and so forth. And that's why I ended up going with uh, Fuller and why my dreams are to go somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge. Um,
0: I think that's wise. I think that's wise because I can tell you personally, when I left Liberty and quickly realized that things were not the way I was taught the bottom fell out and it took a while of faking it and pretending before I had the the guts at least to question things. So I think that's that's wise because there will be many people like myself and and I think it's wise to be able to speak to both aspects of that.
1: I think you're right. Although I will say in Liberty's defense that that was not my experience. Um, Now,
0: granted- Oh, I loved Liberty. I just don't know that I agree with a lot of a lot of what I thought I believed when I went into Liberty is not what I believe now, but
1: fair enough. What I will say about Liberty though, in their defense is just that I was exposed to um, rigorous articulations and defenses of views that aren't li- that don't line up with Liberty's views, uh, I was even assigned textbooks which presented those views. I'm, I'm looking behind me, for example, at my bookshelf where I've still got a book called Across the Spectrum, co- co-written by Greg Boyd. You know, and so it had things like I think a Christus Victor view of atonement and other things. Mm-hmm. And I and I articulated, I defended views that go very contrary to Liberty's um, stated views in a number of things. I'm I'm a Calvinist, for example. Uh, I'm as we'll be discussing what's sometimes called an annihilationist. Um, and I defended these views in um, in my papers and got top marks on them all. So that you, it's not the kind of school where, although they have a very fundamentalist, very conservative ethos, they're not going to – you're not going to experience viewpoint discrimination. And I also think that people will be exposed to a variety of, of views. It's not like you're being sheltered and not exposed to those things. Right. but. But I hear what you're saying. I just, I hope people will, I'm a big fan of liberty as, as I know you are as well. And I just want people to know that it maybe doesn't deserve quite the reputation it has. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, I think the reputation it has is, is not theological. The reputation it has is when it tries to mix theology and politics. And that's, that's, that's probably a bad thing to do uh, in any, any age. Cause your, your ship will, will sink or sail on on the political wins, but you alluded to it a minute ago and and i know when we first started conversing and uh i find it odd i i don't know if on your podcast but on this one i'll ask people for feedback and sometimes i'll get some and it's rare that i do Uh, and so i was i was surprised to get yours um (laughs) You, you had said, and and Dr. Stackhouse and I had, had spoken on it very briefly, that that the conditionalist view or the annihilationist view does hinge quite a bit on atonement. And we didn't really get into that. And, and so what do you mean by that?
1: Well, so um, first of all, there are a number of areas where um, somebody like Professor Stackhouse and I agree in, in certain particulars of this, of this topic, uh, but there are a few in which we do not. And one of those is that I, I, I don't want to misrepresent uh, my, somebody I consider a friend, and I think he does me as well, I don't want to misrepresent Professor Stackhouse, but, where, but he would argue and has argued both in with me in recordings and and in and in book form that the penalty for sin is at least in large part some sort of conscious suffering uh and that in hell when the lost have finished paying for their sins by suffering then they will die um I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the biblical testimony. Um, and that's not what we at Rethinking Hell, uh, which is the ministry I'm a part of, it's not what we argue. What we argue is that the punishment is death. Um, now, that punishment might be inflicted and probably will be inflicted by violent, painful means, just like Christ's death was inflicted. Uh, but that punishment is death, the the privation of embodied life, that the privation of psychosomatic life, that that unity of body and soul, if human beings have souls, uh, that that separates at, at death, um, and the body is no longer alive. This embodied physical life that death provo- uh, deprives a person of, is the punishment for sin. And when we look at um, various. Models of the atonement, various doctrines of the atonement, as uh, Professor Oliver Crisp at Fuller Seminary might call them. Um, Most mainstream views of atonement entail some sense of substitution. Um, I am an advocate and defender of penal substitutionary atonement, but even views like Christus Victor, um, which is also known as the ransom view, uh, the sort of Anselmian um, satisfaction view, these mainstream views of atonement, they all include an element of substitution, which just means that what Christ bore, uh, he bore in our place, in our stead, so that we won't have to. Now, the question is, what did he suffer on our behalf? And and the biblical testimony, as I argue in the uh, in a paper that's about to come out in the McMaster Journal of um, Theology and Ministry, uh, and as I'll be arguing at the upcoming Rethinking Hell conference, which we'll talk about a little bit later, probably, what I argue is that ba- you know fr- from a variety of angles, both from Animal sacrificial uh, themes in the Old Testament, as well as explicit statements in the original Greek of the New Testament, that Christ died for our sins. The, the Greek word "huper" or "anti," meaning something like "instead of" or "in the place of," he he died in place of his people. Um, now, when we think about what a substitution is, imagine if um, imagine if I Hired a, uh, I needed to hire a substitute teacher, and so I went and I looked at a bunch of um, uh, CVs or, or resumes for people that want to be substitute teachers, and I hire one, but I assigned them to go substitute for a pitcher on a baseball field. Well, just because, you know, I, I guess... What I'm trying to get at is that the, by, by, by pitching baseballs at a baseball field, even though I hired what I'm claiming as a substitute teacher, nobody in their right mind would grant that what that person did was substitute for the teacher because what they did was radically different. Okay, um, But if Christ was our substitute and bore what we should have borne, what we deserved – As the consequence for our sin, whether it's penal or otherwise, then, and if, as scripture testifies, what he bore in our place was death, the privation of embodied life, then the consequences uh, that we would have faced in hell had he not done that for us, and ergo the consequence awaiting those for whom he didn't die, if if somebody is a Calvinist like me, or at least those who fail to appropriate his atoning work to themselves through faith, they, too— Um, uncovered by the blood of the lamb must go into uh, their punishment that's awaiting them in hell must likewise be death, the privation of embodied life. And that doesn't sound all that, um, controversial until you realize that the, that the traditional view, the, the doctrine of eternal torment that has dominated Christian thinking on this topic since about the time of Augustine, that view entails the resurrected immortal, uh, immortalization of resurrected lost people. Um, They will be raised back to life. They will be granted bodily immortality and they will go into eternal life, albeit in a bad place instead of a good place. And you could see this all throughout the history of the tradition. So if Christ as our substitute bore death, but what the lost await in hell is everlasting life in immortal bodies that live on forever in torment, you you couldn't get, you couldn't get more different In terms of what he did on our behalf, what he did in our place. And I've gone on and on, but basically, so the point here is, is that we can can discern from the atonement that since Christ died in our place, so that Christ died in our stead, so that we wouldn't have to, therefore we will live, but those who aren't covered by his atoning blood will themselves die and forever.
0: Are there any versions of atonement that a conditional view is not gonna hold water so you got like mimetic or, uh, or or even Christus Victor it sounds like it would for that but are there any views of atonement regardless of how far out there they are that a conditional view can't can't maintain
1: I wouldn't say there are there are any that uh, conditionalists can't maintain I mean a mimetic view um, first of all I'm, I'm a Huge critic of mimetic theories of atonement and, and other things in scripture um and and we don 't have to talk about that here but but you know uh, take but, but there are other
0: good because I, I have not are, prepared for that
1: well <laughs> neither i 'm not prepared for it either but uh, there aren 't I would say there aren 't any doctrines of atonement that a conditionalist view a conditional immortality view is incompatible with, but I would say that this argument that I'm making, this positive argument for conditionalism, um, isn't, a, isn't an argument that would be easy, easily made in certain other models. So, for example, um, you have views like the vicarious penitence model of atonement, which Oliver Crisp calls a, a non-penal substitution view. Um, in that model, in that doctrine of atonement, Christ died um, not in our place, but as a demonstration of what our sin deserves. Well, if he died in our if he died not in our place, but as a demonstration of what sin deserves, well, then you would think that sin deserves death. So there's a there's a doctrine of atonement uh, that is not mainstream, but which would lend itself to the positive argument I'm making. On the other hand, you have something like the governmental theory, which Oliver Crisp calls penal non substitution. In that view, Christ bore a punishment, um, but it wasn't in our place, and the punishment that he bore isn't necessarily Uh, equal to the punishment that we deserved. Um, It was some sort of equivalent that may or may not be um, identical. And and an analogy might be something like, imagine you owed me $1,000. Well, you owe me $1,000, but I might accept as an equivalent payment, a painting on your wall that's worth around that much money. That's not the same thing, uh, but it is worth something equivalent. And so one could argue um from the eternal torment side of things that christ bore death but but that's not what we deserve what we deserve is something similar or equivalent to that which is eternal torment Mm. but but of course note that although that doesn't lend itself to a positive argument from conditionalism it also doesn't lend itself to a positive argument for eternal torment
0: yeah well it seems well at least in my understanding of, of the cross it seems kind of a weak argument overall but um but that's a different topic. You had talked a bit about um, or, or alluded to there are a lot of similarities between you and Dr. Stackhouse, and, and there are things that you differ on. And, and one of the things that we discussed in brief is a, a label that he used as terminal punishment and that, that you and your, your, most of your compatriots at Rethinking Hell would, would have issue with that terminology for a conditionalist view. Why?
1: Well, again, um, remember, as I, as I explained a little bit ago, our view at Rethinking Hell, and I think the biblical view, is that the punishment is death, not suffering, and then after the suffering exhausts the penalty owed, then they die. That, that I think, is a fair way of characterizing uh, Professor Stackhouse's view. Um, now, if you think about the word terminal and, and, and phraseology that we're accustomed to hearing that word in, think of something like terminal illness right? Or terminal disease. I mean, that's not the only example where the word terminal is used, but I would say that's one of the most common, one of the most recognizable. And what is a terminal illness? Well, a terminal illness could be construed in in at least one of two ways. It could be an illness that, um, results in death or, and I think this is probably more likely, it's a, it's an illness that ends with death. Okay. So in either of those cases, it's not that the illness is death, It's that the illness produces or ends up with death. Okay. But if the punishment, as I would argue, and as we at Wreathing Hale would argue is death itself and not something leading up to death. Well, then terminal punishment communicates something a little bit different. Terminal punishment would indicate that there's a finite duration of punishment that ends in death. And my biggest problem with that is simply that it seems to me that Jesus says in places like, well, the Bible says in places like Jesus does in Matthew 25, 46, that the punishment is eternal, not, that the punishment lasts for a time and then ends, but that the punishment itself is eternal. And we, and as a conditionalist that holds to my understanding of conditionalism, I can say that the wicked in hell will be raised, they'll be judged, and then they'll be punished with death and their privation of life will last forever. It will be an eternal punishment. I don't think that Professor Stackhouse can make that claim as consistently as we can at Rethinking Hell. And that's that's why I don't like the label terminal punishment because it leads our critics to think that what we're saying is that the punishment is a finite in duration and then after it's over, then the wicked will die.
0: One of the other critiques that, and, and, and rightfully so, in my episode with, with Dr. Siles, I says we didn't give, we gave a lot of emotional and we have a lot of subtext and we talk a lot about the Bible, but we don't really ever name any scriptures. And so some of what I've read and and been not accused of, but allowed was just weak hermeneutics, weak exegesis, uh, with very little scripture to stand on for those that are listening. And so I would like to dedicate a good portion of time specifically to that. and And so I've I have many questions that I have tried to gather of of everything opposing and and some of them are my questions because as I alluded to earlier I still don't know where I am. Um and so this should be this should be interesting. And so I'll just start <laughs> with with Matthew 25 uh, that you just alluded to. The eternal conscious the thing that I've noticed is everyone that believes in the quote on traditional view seems to use very similar scriptures but just in a different way. And so mm. in Matthew 25 Everyone tells me, well, you know, this means just this, and this is what it means. This is what it's always meant. And if you read it any other way, you are bordering on heterodoxy, possibly heresy. Hmm. And, and so, you know, for instance, like Matthew twenty-five thirty, and I can't quote it because I don't have my Bible in front of me. What would you say to people that say, well, this is how you read Matthew twenty-five, where <sighs> where you know you just, eternal torment, and it's also in Jude six and in, in Matthew eight twelve and Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13, um, just e- eternal, eternal torment.
1: Okay, so I want to break that down and cover three verses in that text because that chapter has three verses that I think um, the traditional view likes to focus on. But before we do that, what I want to do is just say, because you mentioned emotions and things like that, for the listener's sake, I want them to know that uh, prior to becoming conditionalist and since becoming a conditionalist, I have never had any sort of emotional or philosophical or moral objection to the doctrine of eternal torment. Now, maybe that makes me hard hearted, um, uh, somewhat, you know, um, a curmudgeon or something like that. But but honestly, I've never really um, wrung my hands over that idea. I, I'm conservative. I'm reformed. I think that God has uh, every right to dictate, based on his own just and holy nature, what the appropriate punishment for sin is. And if that punishment is eternal life in torment, then so be it. Um, I can trust him in that. And, And meanwhile, all of my emotions pulled me and continue to pull me in the opposite direction, back toward the traditional view. And that sounds really bizarre, but consider that when people adopt alternatives to the doctrine of eternal torment it often endangers their livelihood it endangers their 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 social community at at church and things like that i mean there are churches i could not only teach at I, i couldn't even be members at there are schools i couldn't teach at or even be a student at there are ministries like answers in genesis where somebody who becomes convinced of conditional immortality for biblical reasons is forced to resign and and i say that as a fan of answers in genesis i'm a young earth creationist as i said so i knew it would be um it would make me somewhat of a pariah in the very conservative, in the very circles I most identify with. And so everything pulled me in the direction of the Doctrine of Eternal Torment. But I was taught very early on in my faith that it is important that one follows the Bible wherever it leads. Um, and I did that, and that's how I came to the view that I have now. Now, having said that, um, I'm glad we turned to Matthew 25 first, because as I often tell people, the thing that convinced me of conditional immortality more than anything else was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text that historically has been cited in support of the doctrine of eternal torment proves, upon closer examination, to be better support for conditional immortality. And this is no exception to that rule. So let's go through the three verses in this text that I think the traditionalist is going to argue from, at least the primary ones, and we'll just take them one at a time, and you can ask, you know, questions back and forth. Sure. And you and you started with verse thirty. Uh, Cast the worthless servant in the outer darkness. In that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, first of all, let's acknowledge what this verse doesn't say. This verse doesn't say that weeping and gnashing will go on forever, number one. Number two, that verse does not say that their punishment is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It only says that that's what will occur there. Um, and with those two things in mind, if you imagine somebody being capitally punished, like even in an electric chair today or or, or uh, um, hanging or something like that, there's going to be pain, visceral terror and emotion and, and and pain as a person is dying and when they die it's over and it could equally be said of such a person that in that electric chair or in that noose there was weeping and gnashing of teeth there's just nothing incompatible there uh, with this verse but i but i don't want to leave it at that i'm not simply going to say this verse is perfectly consistent with our view i would actually argue that it's more consistent with our view and it's because of the way that weeping and gnashing of teeth is used elsewhere so for example in matthew 13 Uh, There's this parable that Jesus tells uh, of the wheat and the tares. And at the end of the parable, uh, Jesus quotes the the person in the parable saying, gather the weeds first, or the tares, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And what's critical there is that the word uh, burned, that's actually not the best translation of that word. The word is katakayo. Um, The verb in Greek, kayo, by itself means burned. But the word katakayo means completely burned, burned up, burned down, burned to ashes, that kind of a thing. Um, Now, if the parable weren't enough, Jesus goes on in verse 40, uh, actually a few verses before that, but he goes on to interpret that parable that he had just told in which weeds are burned up in fire. And what he says is that just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what we can see here is that Jesus interprets his own parable in which tares are completely burned up, reduced to ashes in a fire. And he says that just like those weeds, the wicked will be thrown into a fiery furnace, and there there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture is that just like these weeds are burned down to ashes, so too will the wicked in a fiery furnace. And of course, there's going to be weeping and gnashing uh, in that kind of an experience. But the picture, again, is one of complete consummation, complete consumption. Um, And just as one little last bit of evidence there, what Jesus is also alluding to is Malachi chapter 4 which says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Uh, And and it goes on to say in verse 3, You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. So I'll put all these things together. And what you have in the picture of weeping and gnashing is a picture of exclusion from God's kingdom and capital punishment. There's just nothing there about eternal torment at all. In that parable in verse 41, Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And when people hear eternal fire, one thing they sometimes think of, especially because this is the way they've been trained to understand the phrase eternal fire, is a fire which continues to burn forever because it never runs out of fuel. Um, You could even look into some of the first few centuries uh, when defenders of eternal torment would say things like the fires of hell melt off your flesh, but then simultaneously regenerate the flesh. And so the fire never runs out of fuel to burn. Um, But that's actually not what the phrase eternal fire is a reference to. Um, This is First of all, this isn't the first time that Jesus uses that phrase. He also uses it in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, where he sets it in parallel to Gehenna which is the New Testament Greek um, uh, transliteration of the Old Testament Hebrew, Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And when you look at places like Jeremiah 733, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, God promises, will one day be called the Valley of Slaughter. Um, the, the, The corpses of God's slain enemies won't be buried because there won't be any room in the ground. And so they'll just be left scattered on the ground where they'll be eaten up by scavenging beasts and birds that can't be frightened away from these corpses upon which they feed. So by setting that picture, and that's not the only picture, mind you, but uh, I mean, that's not the only place where Gehenna is talked about as being a place of death. Um, But when we when when Jesus sets that picture in parallel to eternal fire, you see a fire not that forever has fuel to burn, but a fire which completely burns up. It's irresistible because it's God's fire. It's it's fire as if from God himself. And God is the quintessential consuming fire. Um, but that's, but that's not the only evidence for eternal fire, meaning what I'm talking about. You could also go look at Jude, uh, verse seven, and I say verse seven and not chapter something seven, because Jude only has one chapter. Uh, Jude verse seven says that, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were, uh, that eternal fire rained down from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah, um, as an example of what awaits the ungodly and second Peter two verse six, uh, the parallel to that or not parallel, but, um, Peter's own accounting of the same kind of ideas as Jude. He says that just as Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced to ashes, so too uh, will the wicked be in the end. So, this language of eternal fire doesn't lend itself to the doctrine of eternal torment either. And with that, that brings us to verse 46.
0: This is the verse that I seem to find, Matthew twenty five forty six seem to find the most rebuttal, I, and I don't know why. It's probably because of J.I. Packer. Um, and, and I do want to read something that he said before you, before yeah, you kind of break it down. And so I, I quoted it. So he says, it, it boils down to whether when Jesus said that those banished at the final judgment will, quote, go away into eternal punishment, he envisaged a state of penal pain that is endless or an ending of conscious existence that is irrevocable, and that is a punishment that is eternal in its length or on its effect, and that mainstream Christianity has always affirmed the former and still does, and evangelical annihilationists unite with the many Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and liberals, and by that I assume he means progressive Christians, and just about all indeed who are not universalists, to affirm the latter. And beyond this point, he, he goes on to say that annihilation lists have banned out and that there is no unanimity so why do you want me to begin with that (laughs) i mean so with that in mind he seems pretty damning in his no excuse the pun right well no no pun intended (laughs) (laughs) but uh vitriolic in his in his stance that you this is wrong it's it's always been wrong the church has never believed this and others have told me, you must be a fool if you believe this. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so with that being said, how then do we view Matthew 25, 46?
1: Well, very briefly, or at least relative to how non-brief I usually am, let me just (laughs) mention two things. First of all, you know, he, he mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and things. I could equally say that defenders of the Doctrine of Eternal Torment unite themselves with the Westboro Baptist Church and, you know, Appalachian Snake Wranglers and the Mormons and the, and, and Muslims. All of those groups and many others believe in the Doctrine of Eternal Torment. So I'm not sure what um, this uh, poisoning the well or this guilt by association is intended to accomplish. Actually, that's not true. I know exactly what it's intended to accomplish. And I think it's, uh, I don't think it's, um, it's I don't think it's, charity. yeah, right. Um, Secondly, as for whether or not the doctrine of eternal torment has always been the Christian view, that's simply false, and and scholars nowadays know as much. Um, The reality is that in the first few centuries of the church, you had all three major views of hell represented by uh, one respected teacher or another. Um, I think universalists overstate their case when they claim that uh, universalism was the dominant view in the early centuries of the church, and I think that's wrong, but it certainly was prominent. There were some who held it. Excuse me. Um but so too was conditional immortality. And so you've got people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus of Lyon and Athanasius the great and Arnobius of Sica. Um, You've got a number of people in those first few centuries of the church prior to Augustine um, who all held to this view. So it's, it's simply false to say that this is a novel um, invention that only soft hearted liberals and progressives and so forth are Mm -hmm. turning to in order to escape this terrible notion of eternal torment. Um, So with those out of the way, um, let's look at Matthew 25, 46. Packer is right. Jesus does quote the king in this parable saying these will go away into eternal punishment. Um, But perhaps intentionally, or perhaps not, Packer doesn't go on to quote the rest of that verse. Because the verse goes on to say, but the righteous will go away into eternal life. Now it's true that both punishment and life there... Are uh, described using the same adjective in Greek. It's ionios, and it does mean, I think, anyway, something like everlasting. Um, but just be, but and and to and in that way, their duration is in fact the same. They are parallel in terms of duration. They both last forever. But the judicial context here means that the one fate assigned to the one cannot likewise be the same fate assigned to the other. Otherwise, what would be the point of the contrast? In other words, there's not only a parallel. There's also a contrast. But if the righteous are the ones that go into eternal life, then surely eternal punishment can't also be eternal life. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And so even on the, the very least on the very surface of it, um, the punishment we ought to expect not to be some sort of eternal life and torment, but rather eternal death, a uh, capital punishment. Eternal capital punishment um, would be a good way of putting it. Now, of course, that raises the question, how could that kind of punishment be called eternal? After all, it only takes a few minutes to die, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there are two things that I will say to that. First of all, um, as far back as Augustine, um, uh, you know, people like Augustine were, were acknowledging that the death penalty is not measured. The duration of the death penalty is not measured in the time that it takes to die. If that were what the duration of capital punishment um, were measured in, then lethal injection, which involves a relatively small amount of pain, would be merciful compared to 20 years in prison, right? Um, but nobody thinks that way. Everybody recognizes that capital punishment, no matter how briefly it takes to com- to inflict, is more severe, more uh, egregious, or you know, whatever, more dire, more more serious than 20 years in prison. Um, and so Augustine observed that the duration of capital punishment, and by and by the way, Augustine was a defender of eternal torment. Um, but but he said that capital punishment is measured not in how long it takes to die, but in how long one remains dead. And so if the wicked are raised and if they're punished and their life is deprived, it's taken away and it remains taken away for eternity, well, that's an eternal punishment. Now, the second thing I would offer in response to this issue about eternality is that um, – when in other places in the New Testament, when the Greek adjective ionios is used to describe what could be called nouns of action, meaning um, nouns that sort of share an idea with a verb but have lost the verbal aspect of it, um, the 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 adjective describes the outcome of the verb that that noun uh, communicates. Now that sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, but let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because so, it'll it'll <laughs> make, yeah it'll be it'll be clear what I mean. Um, In the book of Hebrews, in uh, Hebrews 5, 9, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, the verbal, the, the verb that shares this, you know, that is in this family as the noun salvation is, of course, save. But Jesus isn't saving us anymore arguably, I mean, he is sanctifying us, he is interceding on our behalf, and if somebody wants to claim that that is continuing to save us, that surely won't go on after we are glorified and we no longer sin any longer, because there will be no more, you know, our, our sin nature will have been completely obliterated, will be completely transformed, we won't sin any longer, there will be no need to intercede on our behalf anymore. And similarly, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, in, verse, uh, in Hebrews 9, 12, by, his own, by means of his own blood, Jesus secured eternal redemption. Again, the verb there that is associated with redemption is redeem, but nobody thinks that Jesus is still redeeming us. What is forever in both of these cases, what is eternal, is the outcome of saving and redeeming. The saving took a little bit of time, the redemption took a little, the redeeming took a little bit of time, but the salvation, the redemption that results from those acts are forever. Well, so if we look at that, if we take that concept now back to Matthew 25, 46, what we can see is that... Eternal punishment can easily be understood as a punishing that lasts for a time, a punishing, you know, the infliction of the punishing um, is brief, but the punishment, the, the deprivation of life that constitutes capital punishment, that lasts forever. So on every level, there's just no arguing from this passage against our view. It It, it's, it lends itself in every imaginable way to conditional immortality.
0: What would you say, or, or especially scripturally, what would you say, and so w- one of the feedbacks that I got was, you, it's not just the act of sinning, that you have to keep in mind that God is an infinite being, and so it's, it's not you sinning, but it's who you sinned against, and so an sure. infinite God would require an infinite punishment. Uh, which, so scripturally, is there anything either for or against that?
1: Well, the answer to that question, is there anything biblically to support that notion? The answer is no. Um, Anselm, if I'm not mistaken, is the first person to have uh, made this argument in uh, defense of his satisfaction view of atonement. Um, and Anselm, we're talking something like a thousand years after Christ. I, I find it interesting that apparently nobody thought of this argument prior to Anselm um, in the first thousand years of the church. But but let's, let's assume for the sake of argument, I, I have no problem affirming the notion um, because – If the penalty that is required is an infinite penalty, sure, eternal torment would qualify. But if death is the punishment, and if death lasts forever, then that punishment is likewise infinite. Infinite in duration, infinite in severity. Um, They will never, ever, ever, ever live again. Their punishment goes on forever. So annihilation, the complete obliteration of a person's life and being, would qualify as an infinite punishment.
0: So the other text and and oddly enough, my, my wife and I volunteered to teach Sunday school at our church, and we just literally on Sunday went through luke sixteen twenty two well seventeen through uh, the end of the ch- of the chapter there of Lazarus the rich man the beggar uh, we took it more from a, a a perspective of if you are blessed with things you need to share it, how best could we have been you know if we were the rich man. But it's also used quite frequently. And and oddly enough, one of the older middle schoolers asked an aside in the middle of it of, Well, what is hell? What does that mean? What was he trying to warn his family of? And I was like, Well, we can talk about that after class. And I'm not sure what to tell you. <laughs> uh and I and I didn't really answer his question. I kind of just gave him more questions. But mm. you'll see people use Luke 16, 22 through you know, 24 of uh, the rich man is burning and they'll say, you know, he's burning eternally. He says as much, you know, I'm up here. Please let me go back and save my, you know, my family. Someone has to tell them. And so how do you answer that? All right, let's take it in a different way because I find that most people accuse an, uh, a con- conditionalist of hermeneutically using eternal weekly. And I don't believe that you are doing that but is is that version of of Lazarus burning different than, or not Lazarus, the rich man burning different than, than anything that's used anywhere else in either Matthew or Revelation?
1: Well, the, the thing that you need to remember about the story of Lazarus and the rich man, even if we take it completely li- literally, is that there is a bit of a um, hangover that modern translations sometimes suffer from. Uh, that resulted from the King James translation, you know, back 400 years ago, whenever that was produced. And that is the King James translators, for whatever reason, they they translated a number of different Greek words all the same. Um, and so you have passages like the one I quoted earlier, uh, Matthew 18, 8 and 9, where Jesus sets up Gehenna as a parallel to eternal fire. Mm-hmm. Gehenna is properly translated hell. If what we mean by hell, as most people do nowadays is future punishment, the place where we go to in the final day to be judged. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, but the King James version also translated another Greek word in the new Testament hell. And that Greek word is Hades uh, meaning you know, Hades. Um, hades is the new Testament Greek equivalent of the old Testament Hebrew word Sheol. Um, And Sheol, even if we take the what I would argue to be poetic verses in the Old Testament where Sheol is described as um, having people rise up out of it to greet people, kings that are dying and so forth. Even if we take all of that literally, then Sheol in Hebrew thought was a a, the place of the disembodied conscious dead. OK, and that's what if at most Luke 16 is describing and we know that. For three reasons, at least. First of all, uh, verses nine through, uh, in verse twenty-two, the text says that both Lazarus and the rich man died and were buried. Okay, there's there's no, and this is important because hell, when we talk about future punishment, eternal torment, is after resurrection. It's after people come back out of the dead. Secondly, the text explicitly calls this place Hades, not Gehenna, not hell, anything like that. Uh, and then thirdly the rich man's brothers in the parable or in the story are still alive and and he and, and you'll remember that the rich man pleads with with abraham please let me go and warn my brothers that kind of thing couldn't happen in hell because hell is when we talk about the place of future final punishment the, the judgment has has happened the judgment's done people are either in one place or the other not You know, there's no third place where people need to be warned not to head to the bad place. None of that makes any sense at all. Meanwhile, you have places in Revelation chapter 20 where death and Hades are emptied of their dead at resurrection and then thrown into the lake of fire. And sure enough, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the final enemy to be destroyed is death. So the picture of all of this is, sure, let's, let's, for the sake of argument, say that Luke 16 is to be taken completely literally, and that what Jesus is doing is giving us some sort of historical account of some of these two people's experiences in Hades. It's, it's Hades. It's the intermediate state. It's, it's uh, you know, the place where disembodied dead people go to await their resurrection and final judgment. I mean, there's a reason that theologians call it the intermediate state, because it comes to an end eventually in, in resurrection. So no, I don't think there's any argument to be made here for eternal torment.
0: This is this is a question as as I was driving back and forth today that that hit me and and it may be off base and if I am tell me as much. So it seems if if one wants to hold a view that it seems like if I want to hold this view that I have to be willing to, to think at some level that souls have no intrinsic value at all. And that only Christ can give value, which sounds beautiful, especially if you believe in Christ. But it also sounds horrible if, if you've never been uh, in a place that you've been evangelized to or or never have, have gone beyond any form of common knowledge of a creator. And so do you think that souls have an intrinsic value with or without Christ?
1: No, I don't think that's the case at all. Um I think that life is intrinsically valuable. Um, uh, There's a reason why, as a Christian, I'm opposed to abortion and to euthanasia. It's because I think that life is intrinsically good, intrinsically valuable. Um, And I actually would argue that uh, final capital punishment, as I've described it, um, uh, 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 honors the dignity and the value that human beings have. Um, And I write about this in an article at Rethinking Hell called Intrinsic Value, Sanctity of Life, and Capital Punishment – a response to J.P. Moreland. Um, in this article, I quote J.P. Moreland, who, in in the um, in a section of Lee Strobel's book *The Case for Christ*, he argues that uh, that annihilationists treat um, uh, life as if it is if its its value is in its quality of life rather than its quantity. And I showed, oh, that's that that's not in the, that's not the case at all. And in quite the contrary, um, Moreland himself, in other books, defends are, uh, defends objections to the death penalty on the grounds. And I'm not saying you have to accept his grounds. I'm just saying, I'm using his own argument to illustrate my point. Mm-hmm. He argues that capital punishment says your, your, your dignity is such that your choices have genuine consequences, severe consequences. In fact, because your choices matter. Um, when you sin, however grievous it may be or however not grievous it may be in from a certain perspective, you are not only, um, disobeying, you know, an infinite God, but you are, you are going, you, you are doing, um, you are doing things that are no, that you're not meant to do as a human being being created in God's image. You are, um, there's a host of ways that you could, you could try to describe what it is that I'm saying. But the point that I'm getting at is that a philosopher like JP Moreland argues that capital punishment doesn't dishonor a person, doesn't say life is um, valueless, quite the opposite. It upholds the value of life because it says that life is so precious and sin so severe, so serious, that it warrants uh, the, compl- the cessation of life uh, as a punishment. Now, you don't have to accept that argument. I do. But the point that I'm getting at is that if you don't need to think that annihilation assumes souls are valueless, quite the contrary, you can accept that what God is doing is He is He has uh, He has said because He it reflects His character that sin is so serious that it warrants the worst imaginable penalty, and that penalty is the privation of the very life that is so precious that is so valuable. Uh, and anything else in that would be wouldn't be as severe you know imagine if the penalty were to be to to have 10 bucks taken away <laughs> you know which which is more precious which is more valuable 10 bucks or life right well the fact that life Take my is money. taken away yeah right
0: exactly yeah. yeah how do we deal with and 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 you've alluded to it and and so i'd like to end with that and then and then um we'll, we'll wrap up so I'm I'm alive now I die eventually there's some intermediary period of whatever the duration is and then I am resurrected and I'm held account and and Revelation speaks to this in many different ways and and Revelation is a book that has always intimidated me and still does this day but so how do we deal with you know that that second death how do we how do we view that and and specifically, you'll see that as, you know, no, you're everything is going to be consumed in fire. Everything is, is they just use it the same way. But Revelation seems to imply, at least from what I've heard, I've not read uh, uh, Mr. Fudge's book, but from what I've heard him say in some other just clips, that, that the eternal way takes that in the wrong direction, the eternal conscious torment way. Takes what in the wrong direction? I'm that, sorry. That verse, that... That, oh, the second death. Yeah, that that it's. I've heard someone tell him, "Well, this is just a text that you can't. It's hard for you to interpret, and it's hard for a conditionalist to to speak from a position of authority hermeneutically on this text."
1: Well, I mean, first of all, in another article that I've got being published any day now in Evangelical Quarterly, um, which is called "The Hermeneutics of Conditionalism: The uh, A Defense of the." Um, hermeneutical method of Edward Fudge. I actually argue from these texts that hermeneutically, if we exercise uh, standard accepted respected principles for hermeneutics, we will come away with the impression that revelation actually supports conditional immortality rather than work against it. And I could spend hours explaining why, but but I'll just suffice it to, I'll just say two things briefly. Number one, both outside of the Book of Revelation and inside the Book of Revelation, the extreme imagery that's used in places like where the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire, and where the and, and that's in Revelation 20, and then in Revelation 14, where smoke rises forever from the uh, from the torment of beast worshipers that are being tormented day and night. Um, the, all of this imagery is used outside of the Bible and in, outside of uh, the Book of Revelation and in the book of Revelation itself to communicate destruction. Uh, And just as one example, in Revelation chapters 18 and 19, there's this familiar duo uh, to anybody that is fascinated by the book of Revelation as I am. Uh, You have this mystery Babylon, this this blood drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of this seven headed 10 horned beast. Um, and, And together this, this duo persecutes the saints. But in Revelation 18, um, John sees this, this mystery Babylon prostitute being tormented in fire. Um, she drinks the fullest measure of, of God's wrath, which is language used in Revelation 14. Uh, and, at the, and at the beginning of chapter 19, a, a chorus cries out, "Hallelujah! The smoke rises for her from ever and ever or forever and ever." So you've got fiery torment and brimstone, you know, torment and fire and brimstone in chapter 18. You've got drinking the fullest measure of God's wrath in chapter 18. And in chapter 19, you've got smoke rising from her forever. But when the angel tells John what this symbolism means at the end of chapter 18, he says, so the great city will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. You see, the picture of of, that's, imagine if you saw a mushroom cloud today you would think that something had been obliterated. And that's what all of this, this confluence of imagery is intended to communicate it. it. overwhelms the imagination and it appeals to smoke rising in the Old Testament and Edom being turned to pitch and smoke rising from it forever and ever in Isaiah 34.10. It's appealing to all this language familiar to John's readers that communicates complete destruction. And John's angel tells him as much at the end of chapter 18, that that's what that imagery symbolizes in the case of Mystery Babylon. So when we turn to Revelation fourteen and twenty and see that same imagery being used to describe the lost in hell, why would we assume that those places it's intended to be taken literally, but in this place it's intended to be t- it is intended to mean something other than that? It just doesn't make any sense. So that's firstly. Uh, but secondly, um, the second death. What what a lot of defenders of eternal torment don't realize. And and this is forgivable because this is not something that as um, interpreters of revelation, we are trained to see. Um, There is a, there is this dynamic all throughout scripture between the imagery in a, in a, in a prophet's vision and that which it actually means in reality. Um, And there's a particular way that interpreters throughout scripture characterize the meaning of the symbolism. And let me give you just one example. Uh, I'll give you three very briefly. Uh, Joseph, with the cupbearer and the baker in prison, way back in the book of Genesis, um, each of them have these wild dreams. And when Joseph interprets these dreams, he says to the cupbearer, the three buds on the branch are three days, after which you will be restored to your office. And then when he interprets the baker's dream, where the baker has the three baskets on his head, uh Joseph says, the three baskets are three days after which you will be killed. Um, And then later, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And in Pharaoh's dream, he he sees these seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile, and then he sees these seven sickly cows come up out of the Nile and eat up the healthy ones. And when Joseph interprets this bizarre, perplexing imagery, he tells him the seven cows are seven years, and the seven sickly cows are seven years of famine. So, and these are just a, this is a handful mm-hmm. of examples. You can find these kinds of examples in the New Testament as well. Now, with that in mind, consider that in Revelation twenty verse fourteen and in Revelation twenty one verse eight, John in the first of those two cases and God in the second interpret the lake of fire. They say the lake of fire is the second death. Now, here's what's important about that. Besides the fact that what they're doing is interpreting, is the is the point that when interpreters interpret imagery. The me what they tell you it means is delivered in plain, ordinary, straightforward language. That's why, that's how it can interpret the imagery. If I if Joseph had told the the the, the baker that the three baskets on his head were um, three wuzzle woos, or, you know, it was just some, I don't know. Um, that was terrible, but you know, he, he used some other weird imagery to describe it. J- the baker would have no idea what Joseph was saying. It's only because Joseph delivered the, the the interpretation in plain language that it made any sense. And it's the only reason that we can make any sense of the, of the dream. Mm-hmm. So we have this dynamic in revelation 20, where the lake of fire with this eternal torment of the beast and the false prophet and the devil this is all the imagery, all the, all the stuff that John is seeing in this bizarre dream he's having, this bizarre vision. But when he tells you what it means in Revelation 2014 and when God tells you what it means in Revelation one they're telling you that this bizarre imagery is, symbolizes the second death. The second death is the plain, ordinary, straightforward meaning of the imagery. And what would we take second death to mean? It would, it would mean dying a second time. And that's what we conditionalists believe. The resurrected lost who had formerly died a first time are raised back to life, judged, and die a second time. It makes perfect sense, and it, makes, it, 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 it respects, it honors this dynamic between imagery and interpretation in the book of Revelation. But now consider what the traditional view does to it. The traditional view, the doctrine of eternal torment, says the second death is actually a metaphor. The second death is some sort of um, code language that is actually that actually means eternal torment in a lake of fire. So they're actually treating the lake of fire as the plain, straightforward language and second death as the metaphor, as the symbol. And that's exactly
0: backwards yeah. of how this dynamic works throughout scripture. Making a metaphor of the metaphor.
1: Right, exactly. Although uh, metaphor of what they think is the literal. Right. <laughs> when in fact it's the other way around. Um, so so those are just two, and there's a lot more that could be said. In fact, there's a talk I did at our second annual conference uh, where uh, my friend and I give a presentation arguing for conditional immortality and against universalism uh, from the book of Revelation. Um, and maybe I can send you a link to that so you can include it in your show notes or whatever.
0: I definitely will. But let's end there. So you have a conference coming up in Dallas uh first second week of march second week of march um talk a bit about that and then and point people to where they can get engaged uh where they can uh, definitely rethinking how uh your website is full of more information than i can read ever i think <laughs> um but good information uh very uh, what i like about your website is instead of just speaking at people, you, you tend to quote people when they say something so that your answers have context, mm. uh, which I find extremely helpful for someone like myself with a very cursory knowledge base of many, many, many things. So, mm. um, talk a bit about your conference coming up. How can people, uh, interact with that register for it, uh, come, uh, and, and just all about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So it's March 9th and 10th. It's a Friday and Saturday coming up in just under four weeks. It is, as you said, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And basically, this is our fifth annual conference. We've had four previous ones. And at this conference, you know, we've we've covered a variety of different topics related to this one. Um, But this year, we're going to be focusing on the atonement, which we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Uh, And so the theme of the conference is Crushed for Our Iniquities, Hell and the Atoning Work of Christ. Now the plenary speakers, uh, the, the keynote speakers, if you want to use that language instead, they include uh, four people. First is Preston Sprinkle. He is uh, a he was a professor at eternity, eternity Bible College, and he co-authored Erasing Racing Hell with Francis Chan a number of years ago. Um, And at the time, they both landed on the doctrine of eternal torment. uh, But Preston has since become convinced of conditional immortality and will be speaking on the topic at this conference. Um, He's also published a number of other books. He's extremely popular. um, And uh, I think people would really enjoy hearing what he has to say. We've also got Dr. Craig Evans. He is a scholar from Houston Baptist University. uh, very well known, very well respected. And he actually, from what I understand, will be um, arguing for neither one position of the debate nor the other, but rather laying out some um, biblical uh, principles that need to be kept in mind as the two sides of this debate um, you know, continue the conversation. We also have Greg Allison. He is a historical theologian from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he is a defender of the doctrine of eternal torment. And he'll be presenting a, um, a presentation that covers the history of hell throughout church history, arguing that the, uh, that the dominant view has been eternal torment. And then last, but most, most certainly least is myself. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to be, uh, giving a, a presentation based on the atonement, um, based on that paper that I've got coming out in McMaster. So there's a whole lot going on um it's really gonna be great
0: awesome that's great well, Chris, thank you for spending your evening uh, with me i I appreciate it very much I've, I've enjoyed I have enjoyed it very i, I don't know. I, I'm saying it wrong i I have greatly enjoyed doing this um i so have i it's been know.
1: my it's been my pleasure and honor.
0: Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your engagement. I want to ask you to, if you didn't do it at the beginning, do it now. Go to iTunes, rank the show. That is the best way that you can help the conversations that are happening here bubble up on the internet so that more people can interact with them. On top of that, share the show. Share it with your family, your friends, Facebook, social media. Whatever avenue you choose is a great avenue. And lastly, I would also ask if you feel so led to become a patron at patreon.com slash Church? You'll also find a link to that on the website, canisaythisatchurch.com. I am very grateful for those of you that have taken the time and your, your money to do so. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of your willingness to become part of the community that is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'll talk to you next week.